Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> you may find me coughing and hacking a little bit more than usual. The uh, youth group decided it'd be a good idea to go to Lake Tahoe yesterday, which when we planned it seemed brilliant. It seemed a little less brilliant when we got there, but uh, actually we were okay, and the, actually the air quality was better up there. We could see a blue portion of the sky, bluish, kind of baby blue portion of the sky up there, so I know that was a little better than it was here, but uh, so... I may have a little bit of smoker's lung going on. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your goodness to us. You make yourself known to us. We're not left on our own to feel around in the dark, in the haze of our lives, and, and not know what we're bumping into, not know what we're uh, really finding. But you make yourself known to us. You shine light into our hearts to make yourself known. You, you make us your children. Lord, you give us your word that is a guide for us, that cuts right into even our inner man to reveal what our uh, motives and our thoughts are. Lord, you make yourself known. You're good to us, and we thank you for that. As we come this morning together, we're glad that we get to worship together. We love to sing together. We love to fellowship with one another. We love to be encouraged and to encourage each other, and we love to sit under the teaching of your word. And so, Lord, as we're, as we're here today under your word, I pray that you would help us to be attentive. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give me words to say that would uh, be from you, from your word, that would encourage us, that would spur us on, that would lead us into a closer walk with you. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our midst. She would make herself known, Lord. Be lifted up today. Be glorified today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love to talk about my, <clears throat> my small group, and so you're going to hear a little bit of that today. And in, in our small group, we're going through the book of Acts. We're whipping right through it. I think we almost got through chapter 11 this last week. And so uh, we're making great, great progress. We've only been at it for, I don't know, six or eight months or nine months or something like that. <laughs> so... We're making progress, and for me, it's actually pretty good progress. But uh, so we're, as we're discussing the book of Acts, we're studying that in our, in our study. We um, uh, came across this passage that's going to be our passage for today, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And it relates so specifically and so clearly to our topic of discussion for the summer, which has been discipleship, that I thought we should look at a portrait of discipleship as we see in Acts chapter 2. So as you're turning there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. That's what we're going to be looking at is a, a picture, a portrait of discipleship, the way it was carried on right after Pentecost. And that's our context. As we, as we look at our passage here and we uh, flip earlier, look earlier in the chapter 2 of Acts, we see that Pentecost is happening. This is a brand new thing that's going on here in, in chapter 2 of Acts. It's a new thing, right? It's, uh, it's the first coming of the Holy Spirit in a very powerful and, and visible and audible way. Okay, so this is something new that God is doing. So the, I'm sure you're very familiar with the story, but what you're seeing happening here is that uh, the disciples are all gathered together, and uh, probably they're praying. It doesn't specifically say, but they're gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and then these these tongues like fire kind of distribute themselves amongst the people and they, and they land on their heads. I've never seen that. 
Okay, that would be new. That would catch your attention. Even in our day and age of, you know, CGI and, and, you know, effects in movies and stuff like that, that would catch your attention if that happened. And in this time, it was incredibly amazing. All right, so the, the, you have these tongues of fire separate. They, they divide out. They land on the heads of all these different people, and they start speaking in different languages unknown to them. So this is an incredible thing that's going on. This is a fulfillment of, of prophecy from the book of uh, Isaiah, that this was going to happen, that uh, these, these different tongues. and It, it was a big deal going on. Uh, an enormous deal was happening, okay? And so other people outside of this group, they, they hear what's going on. They hear this rushing wind that, like, shakes this building. They hear these people speaking all these languages, right? And all these people gathered around are wondering what in the world is going on. This is not normal. This is a big, big deal, but we don't understand it. And the crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem at that time, they were there for the feast. And so they, they were Jews that would have gathered from, from really all over the known world, and they would come back to Jerusalem for the feasts, right? And so they, they were there, and there were tons of them. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had traveled to Jerusalem, and they're from all over the place, right? And the vast, vast majority of them are Jews. Otherwise, they would be some sort of proselytes or, or people who have attached themselves to the Jewish faith. But almost all of them were ethnically and religious Jews. And so they had come to Jerusalem, and they were gathered all around. And here you have this thing happening with a small group of these people. You have the wind coming. You have it shaking. You have all this stuff going on, and they start hearing their native language that they speak back where they came from, Right? They start hearing their language, and they're thinking, you know, I don't hear that here. That's not a normal thing. They start hearing all these languages, and so they're thinking, well, what's going on? And they debate, and of course, some people, as you read through the book of uh, through Acts chapter 2, you see that some people kind of start mocking them and saying, ah, you know, they're just drunk. Really, that's what the deal is. They're, they're just drunk, and they have these weird things are going on. That's why they're behaving so strangely, right? And so uh, you have some people kind of, you know, mocking them or whatever. Well, then Peter stands up, and here you have the first... Christian sermon. Peter stands up and he starts preaching and he says, no, it's nine o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. Here's what's going on. And he starts laying out for them what really is happening and that this is a fulfillment. This is a culmination. This is, this is actually the day of the Lord upon them in the person of Christ. It's here. It's right now. He reads from or quotes to them from Joel and you have, uh, you have verses 17 through 21 there uh, talking about all these things that are going to happen. Signs and wonders and language. And you're, you're going to see different people prophesy. You're going to see not just priests, not just kings, not just the people you would expect to, but maidservants, manservants, everybody. You're seeing it being distributed the gift of, of, of prophecy, in a sense, you see God's going to speak through and use more people than just the priests, just the high, the high kind of people that you would expect, right? And so he explains this, and he said, all of this means, this is a reference to what Joel said, the day of the Lord is upon us, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He ties all this in to Jesus and says, you know, this is, this is all about Jesus, he, he came, he's, he's, he's God's son, he, he's, he's God's man on the scene. He came here, he was the fulfillment of all this, he's the one that's all wrapped up in, and you killed him. And so the people are struck. 
And they're thinking, we, we killed God's Messiah. We put him to death. So what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? So the answer there in verse 28 and 29, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. That's the message. And so what happens? What do you see happen? So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 41, about 3,000 souls. Okay, so here you have this baby church. It was just born at nine o'clock that morning. Okay. This is a baby new church. Peter gets up and he preaches and 3,000 people get saved that day. How do you disciple 3,000 people? How do you do that? When you're such a small group, maybe 120 to begin with, how do you disciple 3,000? How are you going to integrate them? How did the apostles who were trained to do this take this brand new church and start working in these people's lives? How are they going to minister to this believing community? How are they going to meet their spiritual needs? How are they going to disciple so many new believers? Well, that brings us to our passage, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's how they did it. So first, let's look at the priorities of the first church, the priorities of the first church. Look at what they were doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. First of all, the apostles teaching, right? You, you actually have the apostles on the scene for them, right? They, they've, they've replaced Judas Iscariot with another guy. There are 12. Again, you have the apostles right there. They're the ones doing the teaching, but what are they teaching? Well, they're teaching what Jesus taught them. And Jesus got his teaching from the old Testament. They're teaching the Bible, but you have the 12 apostles who are going to write it down in the form of the new Testament. And it refers to and is built upon the Old Testament, really, that they're teaching Scripture. That's what they're doing, and they're devoting themselves to it. Some, some of the versions that we have translate that a little more clearly. The idea is they were continually devoting themselves. It's not just that they devoted themselves, pow, and then it was done. They were devoting themselves continually, regularly, again and again. It's an ongoing thing that they were doing to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to fellowship. Now, usually I associate fellowship with food in some sense, right? And I think most people who've been in church for any amount of time associate fellowship 
with food. And that's not exactly the case, but I think, I think actually the association is not bad because when we eat with someone, we're forming a bond with them, right? We, we talk, we kind of let down our guard a little bit. We see that the guy, you know, the guy kind of, he chews with his mouth open or whatever, or, or she, you know, like it, it kind of breaks down the walls a little bit, right? You're building fellowship. The, the idea of fellowship is not just the relationship that you have with one another, but it's, it's kind of what you share in common. And by share, I mean actively sharing with one another what's going on, the, what you talk about, what you, what you have in common, what, what you share beyond just the fact that you're, have this relationship with one another. That's what fellowship is, right? So when we eat together, very often we are fellowshipping. Very often we are, not always, but very often we are. It's, it's what we share. It's that bond that we share that goes beyond just the relationship itself. It's something extra. And if you think about for these Christians, it's a big deal. What, what would they share when they came together to eat? What would they fellowship about, do you think? They would remember that on Tuesday, or it wasn't Tuesday, but the, that day when it happened, do you remember those tongues of fire? That was the weirdest thing ever. And then it was amazing because we saw such and such happen. And then Peter got up and preached, and we started putting things together, and 3,000 got saved. That's what you'd fellowship about. That's what you'd talk about. You talk about how the, the, the apostles were there teaching you and, and you're understanding these new things, right? That would be in the forefront of your conversation with one another. They devoted themselves to fellowship. The day of the Lord was upon them. It was there in their midst and they were getting to see it. What else would you talk about? I don't know that you'd talk about anything else. They devoted themselves to breaking bread. Breaking bread. Reference to eating together, right? That's another reference to eating together. There's a little bit of, of discussion. Does this mean the Lord's table? Or does this mean just having dinner together? And in our small group, we kind of batted this around for a while, and, and um, scholars aren't even super clear on it. And he, here's the way I think it probably worked out. This is just a couple of months after Jesus had given them the Lord's Supper the first time and said, this is my body broken for you. This is, this is the, my blood of the covenant given for you. Every, every time you drink this, do this in remembrance of me, right? It was just a couple of months previous that this had happened. So that was fresh in their mind. And it was one of his last teachings right before he went to the cross. So I think it would have been fresh in their mind every time they ate anything. When Christians were together and they were eating, oh, you remember Jesus' hands? Remember, remember when he did that? Remember when he, he said this was his body and we were confused and now we get it? They would talk about that. That would have been a key part of any meal that they had. And so I think really the two are one. I, I don't think there was a separate, you know, we, we sort of have a little bit of a, of a ceremony when we do it. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is it was probably more organically related to a meal in their day because they had first received it at mealtime, Right. And so it was connected with the, the fact that they were eating together. So I think it's a little bit of both going on. They, they were devoting themselves to breaking bread. They were eating together. They were being together. They were reminding one another of what Jesus had done for them on the cross. They were reminding one another of these, these events that, that had gone on. They devoted themselves to breaking bread. They devoted themselves to... The prayers, it goes on to say, devoted themselves to the prayers. That makes sense, right? That they would, that they would want to pray together. Here they, you know, not too long ago, the, the, the disciples, all, they had Jesus in their midst. 
and they could go and talk to him, right? They, they were right there and they could communicate face to face that way and hear from him. And what did Jesus do? They, they asked him, teach us how to pray. And so he taught them how to pray. So he, he had instructed them on in how they should pray. And then think about his own life, the pattern of his own life, the fact that he was often going off by himself, right? He was going off alone, praying all night, or he's getting up early before the sun and he was praying. He was alone praying. He demonstrated to them the importance of prayer. And so this new community, this new Christian community, this new part of the Jesus movement, of course, would have emulated that same thing. And if you think about it in your own life, prayer, what am I saying when I don't pray? I got this, God. I'm, I'm good to go. I, I can take care of this. Or that, that, that's, one, that's one thing I can mean by that when I don't pray. Another thing I can mean by that when I don't pray is, God, I know you'll take care of it. I completely take that for granted. I'm just going to go about my life, and you're going to take care of me. Okay? So you've got a couple of different options when you don't pray. Those are, those are the basic two of what you're doing. You're trusting God's going to take care of it, and you don't really need to talk to him about it. He's, he's got it. You don't need to thank him for it. You don't need to look for it. Just take it for granted. He's going to do it. Or just in your own strength, go and live your life. Those two options, I think, are relatively clearly sin, right? We shouldn't take God for granted, nor are we to live our lives in our own steam. They devoted themselves to prayer. But it's, it's more than that. It says they devoted themselves to the prayers, the prayers. What does the mean in there? Well, it probably means a reference to, in the temple, this regularly scheduled prayer times that they had in the temple. And that they would go and they would attend those prayer times. So they would show up to prayer meeting. That wasn't just once a week. It was daily at various times. Of course, they probably couldn't make all of them, but they were regular at prayer meetings at the temple. They committed themselves, devoted themselves continually to the prayers. And we, we have a, a prayer meeting here in our church. We meet on, on Wednesday nights at about 7 o'clock, and, uh, and we pray. We share requests, we, we share praises, and we pray for one another. We pray for you guys, and we pray for a lot of reports that come in of people that are sick or people who have gotten better or other issues going on. We pray for a lot of people. We meet and we pray. So that's, that's one scheduled prayer time that we have. But there are other scheduled prayer times that, that are across the board in the church. And those are, those are found on the bottom of the inside flap, the front flap of your bulletin. Our small groups pray. We share more intimate requests with one another and we pray for one another. We pray for you guys. We pray for people we're sharing the gospel with. We, we pray for loved ones who are, who are hurting or who are sick or we, we pray for our military. We pray for our leaders, pray for our nation. So that, that's another scheduled time that we have here at, at Parkside. But they, they were devoting themselves to these things. These were, these were their priorities. They were devoting themselves to the prayer. So the church in Jerusalem, right after Pentecost, had some top priorities in their, in their lives that they were keeping in their sights. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread together in the prayers. Now let's look at some of the results. Some of the results. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the first result that I've listed there is the fear of God. Awe. Fear of God. Came upon every soul. There was a deep and profound impact on the people involved in this new, 
the Jesus movement. They weren't even called Christians yet. God was doing something new, and he was doing amazing things, and the people were in awe. Now, the word in the, in the original language, I've kind of flipped back and forth, awe and fear. It's because it's the same word. It's the same word in the original text. Listen to this. Both the Psalms and the Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We read in Proverbs, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then Jesus, even Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10. So the, this idea of fear and awe are very closely related. We often don't like to talk about the fear of the Lord. We don't like to dwell on this kind of fear concept. We, we prefer to push it off to something like reverence or something like that. But, but it's closely tied to fear. And I'll, I'll give you an illustration. I grew up on a farm and, here in Fallon. I grew up with quarter horses. So we, we spent a lot of time with horses. And, um, you know, I was never much of a horseman or anything like that. I kind of preferred to drive the tractor. But, uh, but I, I spent a lot of time around horses. And, I, and, and I'm used to quarter horses. I'm used to how they act. I'm used to the size that they are, right? Well, so then we, we go away and come back, and all of a sudden my parents are into draft mules. And they've got all these draft mules. And if you know the difference between a quarter horse and a draft mule, there's a significant difference. And if you know the size of the, of the a head of a draft mule, first of all, mules have really long heads anyway, but this is, you know, their head is like this. That's huge. And so I come home, and I'm thinking, oh, they got some mules. Big deal, right? I go outside, and I'm thinking, look at those things. They're like Clydesdales. They're enormous, right? And so when you lead these guys, you feel like a little kid holding your dad's hand. You know, you're, you're not, it's not like a quarter horse. It's completely different. And they've got these giant feet like this that when they plop along behind you, you're thinking, you know, you're kind of stepping, you know, you don't want them to get on your heels, right? They're huge. They're just huge. And I didn't grow up with them. And so when we first started working with them, I, I was a little bit in awe of them. Their, their power is amazing what they can do. And I didn't really understand what they would do. I mean, they're as gentle as they can be completely, but the power is incredible. And there is a lot of strength there that you do need to be very wary of because they could hurt you very easily and not even intend to. They're as gentle as they can be, but they, they could really bat you around. There was one time we were, uh, we were staying out with my parents and Gabriel was about a year old, a year and some change. I don't remember, 18 months maybe. And he disappeared, which happened, not a big deal, uh, but we, we found out that he had been gotten out into, into the corrals and, and there's this giant mule head following him along. He was a little bitty diaper baby. I mean, he's 18 months old walking along and this giant mule is following him along, sniffing his diaper. And the head, you know, the head is like this and the boy is like this, you know, talk about awe or fear, right? Gentle, gentle animal, but capable of all manner of destruction. And that's, that's a little bit what this idea of awe is, this kind of fear. Now, it's not like they're a raging bull and going to kill somebody. That, that's fear, probably. They're gentle, but they're capable of all manner of things. And you're not really certain quite what they're going to do. That's a little bit more this idea of, of awe that's going on here. They were devoting themselves to these four priorities, and because of that, they were really being... Uh, it was being made clear in their own minds that God is awesome. He is all powerful and he's doing incredible things in our midst. 
And so what do you do when almighty, all-powerful, infinite God is doing amazing things in your midst? You realize how small you are. You realize what he's capable of. And you, you strongly desire to relate properly to him. And that's what's going on with this fear of God that was growing. It was growing in their midst. Also, not just the fear was a result, but also the power of God at work. God was working in their midst in some miraculous and visible ways. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. So remember, on the day of Pentecost, Peter reminded the crowds of this prophecy from Joel that God was going to do incredible things in their midst. They saw it happen on Pentecost, and it's continuing to happen. You're seeing signs and wonders being done. You're seeing these sort of things that they read about in the prophets. They're being done right there in their midst. God was showing his power. There was this great burst of miraculous activity in this brand-new church. God was doing something brand-new, and he was showing himself strong on their behalf. The day of the Lord was there. The kingdom of God was near. Now here we see God doing miracles through the hands of the apostles right in their midst. Just just picture that for a second. Right in their midst. God was showing his power. He was showing his power in incredible ways. God had produced significant results in the new the new church in Jerusalem. Very significant results. The fear of God and he was working mightily. But there was also a distinct unity among the members, a distinct unity among the members, verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were, they were united. They were together a lot. There was a sense that, that, that they were all in this new and fabulous thing together. They needed one another. In fact, they needed, needed one another so much that they actually started sharing their possessions. When there was someone in their midst who lacked something, they would start sharing. They had things in common. They could, they could loan to one another, borrow things, or even just give things to one another. Now, it's, I think about this, and I, I read it, and I, I, I see this unity that they had and how much time they spent together and the way they were all together. And I think about the possibility for us to develop and how often it does happen that Christians develop an us-versus-them mentality. Us, we who are within the circle, versus them, those who are outside of the circle. We're Christians versus everyone else. There's an ability to develop that us-versus-them mentality. That's a destructive thing. Certainly doesn't lend itself to outreach or to evangelism when we're, when we're always defending ourselves like this, right? Us versus them. So what's the solution to stop spending time with Christians? I don't think so. That's not the solution at all. That's not the solution they went after. What it may mean when we're developing this us versus them mentality is that the time we are spending with Christians needs to be spent in a different manner. We need to be spent doing something different. We can, we can actually waste our time together. We all know that. We've wasted time together, right? You can waste your time together. You can actually poison one another with your time together, right? If I'm busy talking, you know, bad about the, you know, this other church or, or these other people or, or this other thing going on, and you and I are just fussing with each other about it, what's that doing with our attitude? 
Are we being drawn into the presence of God? Are we being encouraged? Are we more or less likely to go share the gospel with those people that we're fussing about right now? We're less likely because it's us versus them, right? So the solution to that us versus them problem that we so often have is not stop spending time with Christians. It's changed the way you spend time with Christians, what your focus is. And I would refer you back to point number one, maintain those sorts of priorities. If we would maintain those priorities with one another, our time together would energize us and encourage us to go out and be ministering to them, to those who are not in our midst. There was a great unity and they were, they were together and they were meeting one another's needs. Now, if, if you remember the situation from, from Pentecost, you have people who traveled from all over the known world, gathered in Jerusalem and were there, and a lot of them listened to Peter preached and they became Christians. And so now they're thinking, you know, I, I was expecting to be here for a couple of weeks. I brought that much cash. I have, you know, lodging figured out or whatever. But I'm a brand new Christian and this is the only place in the world there are Christians. The apostles are all right here. I don't think I'm going home yet, right? And so I'm sure many hung around. And they hung around longer than they had money for or place to stay. And so you have the church here beginning to provide for the needs of these people. That so-and-so is in town. He came in from Tarsus just to worship. He was expecting to go back home after the feast, got saved. Now he doesn't want to leave us. He wants to be a part of our, he, want to, he wants to continue studying and maintaining these, these priorities that the, that the church had. So he wouldn't want to leave. And so the body would need to provide for him. And so they would even sell things, even costly things. We learn a little bit later about Barnabas who sold a field for this purpose. He'd sold some of his real estate so that he could provide for the needs. They were meeting needs of one another. Now, is this some, some, some form of communism? Is this Christian communism? Well, it's not. One thing that's true about communism is that it is enforced from the top down. It's a government rule or something like that that tells you, hey, you share with him, which teaches him to slack off and teaches you that eh, working hard doesn't really pay off. This is not that that's going on. This is you deciding, hey, I've got some extra and my friend is in need. I'm going to help him out. It wasn't the apostles saying, look, buddy, you need to do this. It was you stepping up and doing it. It was the spirit of God working in your heart so that you would be meeting the needs of those in your community. This was the church growing and being built up. There were new things happening. Needs were being met. The first church had a unity that serves as a powerful example to us today. And the way they were always together and they were meeting one another's needs. Next, let's look at the daily life in the church. Verses 46 through 47 talk about that. 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. <clears throat> Now, first of all, I'm a literary guy. I like to read. I like to notice these kind of things. The, the, that section begins with day by day and ends with day by day. It kind of tells you that's a theme of what's going on there. It was a daily occurrence. This was normal stuff, 
right? That's a parenthesis that tells you this is, this sort of gives you the theme of what's happening in these verses. So first of all, they were receiving, they were receiving, they were attending the temple together. So they were going to the temple. They were also going to Solomon's portico, which is a part of the temple, sort of like the community center where the apostles would probably teach larger crowds. They're receiving the teaching from the apostles. So they're receiving They're breaking bread in their homes. They're receiving meals. They're receiving God's provision. Sometimes it was through their own labor and their own cash. And sometimes if you're like this guy who came from Tarsus, you're just receiving from the good of God's people. He's doing that, working in, in his people to do that. So they were receiving. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. He was providing for their needs. They were receiving. It was a big part of what they were doing as they were receiving from God. And then look down at uh, 47. They were having favor with all the people. They were receiving favor from the people. People who were outside who weren't believers were watching this stuff go on, and they were impressed. They liked what they saw. They, they didn't quite get it all. They weren't sure about this Jesus thing, maybe, or whatever. But they saw what, what this new community was doing. Hey, they take care of each other. They're devoted to Scripture. They're praying together regularly. They're meeting together. They love one another. Look at what kind of people they are. They were impressed with, with what was going on. Now, later in the book of Acts, you're going to see that change. But right now, this is what was going on. They were receiving favor from the people. They were also giving praise. The beginning of verse 47 there says they were praising God. They were responding to God in praise. And if you think about what they had to praise God for, it was a lot, right? They got to be included in the kingdom of God. They got to see the amazing things that God had done there in Pentecost. They were learning all that had been done for them in Christ from the teaching of the apostles. Their needs were being met. People around them were looking at the group and were responding positively to what they saw. And they were part of a group of people like none ever that had ever existed ever. They had a lot to praise God for, and they were giving that praise. And then they were multiplying. They were multiplying. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God was using this to multiply them. It started out massive, right? Day one, 3,000 new believers. And daily, 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 there were new numbers added to their midst. I love that. Normal for them was daily multiplication. That's not normal in my thinking. It was normal for them. It's a new day, new people being added. That's cool. That's neat. God was doing an amazing and amazing thing. So what about us? What do we learn from this first church about discipleship? What, what significance is there for us? You know, we spent the summer talking about discipleship and Last week, we looked at, at some more of the practical aspects of discipleship to get us started implementing this stuff in our own lives. And today, we've looked at a snapshot of uh, what, was, what the church in Acts chapter 2 was like. So, so what, what do we take away? Well, I would say, first of all, just go right down the list, flip your outline back over and go to the top and start from the beginning again. Let's prioritize for ourselves individually and as a church the apostles' teaching. Make that a priority. Learning, studying God's word. Let's prioritize fellowship with one another. In small groups, in large groups, prioritize fellowship with one another. And that our fellowship would be centered around what God is doing, around his word, around prayer. 
not just about the game, not just about this or that, but around what God is doing. We need to prioritize fellowship. Let's prioritize breaking bread together. Eating together, because we love to eat together. My small group eats together every week, and it's the coolest thing. There's a great fellowship that happens around there. And breaking bread together in the Lord's Supper, reminding each other very specifically about what Jesus has done for us. Breaking bread together. Let's prioritize that. Let's prioritize prayer. Let's prioritize prayer. Realizing that we can't do it on our own steam. And realizing that we shouldn't just take God for granted. Ah, God will take care of that. I don't need to talk to him about it. He doesn't really want to hear from me anyway. Let's prioritize prayer. Let's look for the resulting fear of God in our own lives, in our own circle, here in our church. Let's look for that resulting fear of God. That the way I was when I saw this giant mule, Jerry, following Gabriel, little diaper baby, through the corrals. That that awe of like, this is okay, but man, there's a lot of bigness going on here. There's a lot of power. We need to grow in our own fear of the Lord in that sense that God is holy and he is righteous and he is infinite and almighty. He doesn't go on the shelf. He doesn't fit in some compartment of my life. I need to be fearing God. So let's, Let's look for the resulting fear of God, and let's look for the resulting power of God working in our midst as we focus on him, as we learn from his word, as we seek him. Let's look for him to work in our midst. Let's seek the unity of being together. Let's be together as Christians, not just to fuss about other people, not just to fuss about other problems. I'm guilty of that, and I, and I lead the small group, and I'm guilty of that. But let's seek to be together and grow in unity in our time together. Let's seek the unity of meeting one another's needs. I, I could give testimony, but it would embarrass everyone involved right now of our needs being met in the last three weeks. And let's seek that. Let's pursue that. And let's meet one another's needs daily. Let's receive from God. Receive from God daily and daily give him praise for what we receive from him. And daily, let's look for ways to multiply. Seek ways to multiply like it was normal for them to multiply day by day. I want it to be normal for us to multiply day by day. Let's seek that. Let's look for ways to multiply. Now, in conclusion... In all of this, I think one of the best ways to pursue all of these things together is in a small group context. I think it's one of the best ways to do it. It's not the only way, but I think it's one of the best ways, and it incorporates all of these different aspects. Think about it. If you want to grow as a disciple, small group involvement can help in all kinds of ways. As we grow up into these things, as we mature in learning from Christ and following after him, we do that in a small group context. Or if we want to be involved in discipling other people and helping other people to grow as disciples, small group, small group involvement is a, a powerful and a very effective way to get involved in that ministry, impacting the lives of other believers around us, discipling them. So I think small group is one of the best ways to accomplish all of these things. 
And so I would encourage all of you. I, I don't know the numbers. I don't have any idea what the percentage, what our percentage is, uh, the percentage of us who are involved in a, in a regular small group. I don't know what that is. But I, I'll tell you, when I look at my own life and I look at, at our group, our Thursday night group, I see growth. And I see a lot of really good things that God has done in our midst. I also see people who are actively serving. I was thinking through the list this morning, almost everybody's serving in one capacity or another, some in multiple capacities. They're serving in ministry in different ways. This is a group, this is a group that has begun to grow spiritually. We're seeing, we're seeing marriages growing and maturing. We're seeing individuals growing and maturing. We're seeing families growing and maturing. It's a great thing going on. I was on, I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago. And we didn't go anywhere. We just, we, we, it was a staycation. I don't know if you know that word or not. It was a staycation. And so that, that was us. So I, I skipped everything else that week except small group. Because that's, that, that's a part of our lives. That's a part of our lives. That's not something we do. That's, that's our family. And so we didn't skip small group. We went to small group. It's that valuable to me. It's that valuable in my own life. It's, uh, it's something God has used to keep me grounded, to keep me centered. And I'm not the only one. There are a lot of others. And so I would encourage you to get involved in a small group. Find one that works for you. Talk to your friends who attend one and, and, and see if you can join theirs. I would love to see us start some new ones to make some other options available for people. Because frankly, the Amos's living room is getting full, full because we're a big group and we'd love to have all of you, but it doesn't really fit. Maybe, maybe the Lord would have us start some new ones. Maybe the Lord's speaking to you to have you start a new one. Small group is the way we get to express most clearly these things that were going on in Acts chapter 2. That's the way I see it. So I would encourage all of you that direction. And that, that's my intention is that, is that you would value those things and grow in those things and see that you know, there, there's a way actually, actually to contribute to, to participate in growth in these ways. And so that's my giant plug for small groups. One thing I've learned about myself over the years is that small group is so valuable to, valuable to us. Even our time in Chicago, when we had zero time left over, we, we carved out time for small group. It's just key. It's key. So how did the new church, the brand new church, disciple 3,000 brand new believers? Well, this is how they did it. This is how they did it. They had these priorities. They sought these things. This was their day-to-day routine. And so take this home, and I hope, I hope our outline today is actually kind of helpful for you to keep with you and, and look at it, because it, it, I want it to be my priorities, and I want to grow in these ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not the ones left in charge of accomplishing your work in this world. You give us the command. You give us the commission. And you empower it. We learned last week that you are with us. You're the beginning and you're the end of the Great Commission. It's you. It's about you. It's empowered by you. And you have the authority to accomplish it. And so you're at work in our midst, Lord. We trust that. And I pray that you'd continue to work. I pray that you would bring us to greater maturity. I pray that, uh, that I would grow in these ways and that each of us in this room would grow in these ways. That we would have these same priorities. That we would seek this unity. Lord, I pray that you would work and, and, and bring about growth in us.
in our hearts. Lord, we want to be disciples who are following more closely and learning more from you. I pray that you'd help us with that and help us to invest in other people, even in these ways, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. You're dismissed.